Hello, and welcome to the Parts Innovations Podcast, where we try to bring the best ideas and practices and distill them into actionable advice to help us all grow our parts businesses. If you haven't already, please check us out at partsinnovations.com. That is a project where we try to deliver the most valuable training available for this industry today, and it helps greatly to support this very podcast so that we can keep bringing these ideas to you. Thanks for being here, and let's get started. So recently, I posted two questions on LinkedIn, Um, and the goal was to understand the relationship between service and parts managers just a little bit better, and what uh, provides so much tension between the two departments. And if you're in the business, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I think I've probably seen it both ways. I've been in it both ways. I've had service managers on the other end of the line um, who I got along with really, really well. And that's actually the circumstance that I'm in right now. Um, And everything just flows really smoothly. But I've also had service managers who I just absolutely despised and they didn't like me either. Um, And it was, you know, it it seems like it was always for the same reason. You know, we just could not connect. We could not understand why uh, the other person was doing things the way they were doing them. And uh, it just always seemed like they were out to get you. So my question was, the first one anyway, what do service managers wish that parts managers could understand? And I actually got a lot of uh, really good responses from people I follow. Um, and so what I wanted to do today was just go over some of those and provide a little context from uh, my perspective. Um, and then I'll go over the second question, which was the same question but directed towards parts managers Uh, simply asking, hey, parts managers, what do you wish that service managers could understand? So let's go over the first one, uh, the one that was targeted towards service managers. So I'm just going to go through these comments, and some of them I'll react to, some of them I'll just kind of leave them alone. Uh, Danny says, track lost sales and know when to phase in certain parts. And... I think that's reasonable. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people don't track lost sales. Um, and I think the problem with lost sales is that everyone has a different definition of what that actually means. Um, you know, technically you could you could have a part in stock and lose the sale because they went to a competitor, right? So do you track that? Or do you leave that alone because you had the part in stock, because you had the opportunity? And then on the other end, a lot of people think that just lost sales is is if a customer calls in and and requests a quote on a part and you don't have it, um, some people log that as a lost sale. Personally, I don't. I don't think that's necessarily accurate. Um, but... I mean, you can kind of see there's probably, I don't know, three or four more ways that people view what a lost sale actually is. And so, Danny, I agree with you. I think that everyone needs to have their own definition and follow that. Um, and, you know, 
I, I think service and parts advisors need to work together to identify what a lost sale actually is. I mean, sometimes we can't track a lost sale if we don't know that you didn't make that sale. I mean, we're not going to follow up with every uh, estimate we do for the service department, right? So that would take some action on y'all's part um, to come back to us and say, hey, we lost the sale because we didn't have it or the price was, was too much, uh, whatever that might be. So I agree with you. Um, I think that, that that's kind of a joint effort. So moving on, Keith, who is a parts manager, uh, he says both departments need to function as one unit. If the parts manager treats service advisors and techs as though they work for you, magical things happen. As far as stocking parts, the manufacturers control what we get and can get. Confrontational relationships only cost everybody money. That's my two cents. And Keith, I completely agree with you. Um, I think every manager in the dealership should kind of act that way, though. You know, and I'm sure you probably have the same, the same thought on that. Um, we should never treat the employees of another department like, well, like the enemy, honestly, if we could just call it what it is, um, even if we don't agree with them. You know, I have some of my own employees that I don't agree with uh, daily, but it doesn't mean I go around and treat people differently. Um, so I, I completely agree with that. Um, and I think, you know, again, it comes back to the, the service manager sort of has to do the same thing, right? So you guys really have to be on the same page with how you're going to run this fixed operations business. And sometimes if you have a fixed operations manager, um, who isn't the service manager, because if you have a, a parts and service director who's actually just your service manager, truly that, that doesn't mean anything. Um, but if you have a fixed operations director, manager, who oversees both departments, and there are managers uh, heading up both of those departments as well, I find that it actually builds unity a little bit better. Um, as long as that's a, a, a uniquely qualified person who's been on both ends of the spectrum. You know, they can settle disputes. Um, they can really foster good relationships if they know what they're doing, bring the team together, and, and you can start to see it as more of a cohesive unit than parts versus service. Um, so I, I'm a fan of fixed operations directors as long as they are not just simply the service manager with a uh, like a fake title. Um, but, you know, in some cases you're right. Um, I see you're from a Dodge store and they have control over what you're getting and what you uh, are not getting for the most part. Ford's the same way. GM's the same way. Uh, I think we do have a little bit of influence over that. But for the most part, um, yeah. As far as back orders go, 2020 has been the worst year for back orders that you could possibly imagine. Um, and that's just across all manufacturers. But that's part of what you're saying is, hey, they can control what we get and what we can't get. And it's kind of based on their supply chain. Who are they getting their parts from? Um, you know, it's, it's largely based on, on the breakage of the supply chain that we're seeing in 2020. And unfortunately, parts gets blamed for that. And hey, that, that's okay. I think we can handle it. Um, but Keith, I, I agree. I think that it takes two leaders to really bring that 
fixed operations team together and, and start to see them as a more cohesive unit. So Stefan says, depends on the manager, stock more parts um, is what I can think of at the minute. Yeah, I could agree with that. Um, stock more more parts that um, that have demand or that you and the parts manager have agreed on. Um, I think that that's uh, something that should be reviewed probably weekly. You know, um, there should be again a relationship there where, and maybe it's it's you're meeting fifteen minutes a week on Fridays or on Mondays or whatever the case is. But that meeting should happen, you know, and, and if you if you as the service manager is saying, hey, I really am feeling like we don't have enough parts. Let's take a look at that. Uh, let's take a look at our fill rates and see what we're what we're missing and how that's potentially impacting our business. That's a good meeting to have that actually moves the needle forward. So agree with you to some extent, um, just stocking more parts isn't really the solution uh, but being strategic being smart about it having a meeting agreeing on things i think that is a, a really good insight so richard says service managers wish that parts managers understand that they are the ones who have to face the customer when the parts are not in stock and what i think richard is saying is hey service is the one who has to go and tell the customer hey this we don't have this part um and i can see and I can agree with the fact that that's not a that is not a pleasant conversation to have to have especially if it's um, if it's a, a critical part you know a part that that uh, is making that vehicle inoperable so not having something like that and having to go to your customer and say hey uh, you know maybe you're from out of town uh, you probably are going to have to stay overnight while we get your car fixed because we don't have what you need that's not a fun conversation to have as a manager. It's not a fun conversation to have as one of your service advisors, you know, and that's extremely frustra frustrating. But, um, you know, we can't lose our sensibility through that. Um, and I see someone actually commented below it, Jim. He says, yes, but let's talk about reasonable expectations. Even the manufacturer can't have everything. Parts have to have enough demand for future sales to put them in stock, not based on speculation. Service also needs to manage their part of the special order process since parts doesn't have unlimited return options when they order parts they don't use. And Jim, I think you're um, you're you're like a spokesperson for the parts manager. You know, that's that's a good way of putting it. And and intuitively, everyone understands that. I think. Service managers, parts managers, all the advisors, everyone understands that. Um, but in the moment, it just doesn't feel that way. It's it's in the heat of the moment. That's when these conversations start to come about. And that's really a shame because if you're maybe having a roundup meeting for 15 minutes every week, maybe you can mitigate some of this because you're talking about some of the things you missed instead of just letting things happen and roll out and then getting really upset and coming together, butting heads, and just diminishing that relationship even more. So, um, Richard, I, I completely agree with you that on the technician counter end, um, we're not the ones who have to go tell the customer, we don't have your part, we can't fix your car. Um, and then also, you know, Jim, 
that that's just a great insight, um, especially the fact that service needs to manage their part of the special order process since parts doesn't have unlimited return options when they order parts they don't use. You know, and the the way that a service manager is going to answer back to that is, hey, like, you know, I would rather have more than what I need than not enough. And I think that that actually makes sense. Unfortunately, that's not how OEMs see it. Um, there's a lot of parts that you just simply cannot return once you order them. And so you're just kind of stuck. And if you work for a big corporation, um, if you work for any of those guys who are in the top, you know, 10 of automotive corporations out there, you're going to get hit with an obsolescence reserve value once that part starts to age out. And there's just nothing you can do about it. Hopefully you sell it. Um, but there's a lot of the time, and we all know this, that you, you can't sell that part. You can't sell that part and you're stuck just writing it off. Um, and that also builds tension and frustration. And you start to really resent the way that um, service is, is running their operations and services like, hey, you know, I'm just trying to make sure I take care of the customer. So uh, really good dichotomy here. I think this is a really good conversation. So just to move on, uh, Frank says that the service department is their best customer not wholesale customers. Oftentimes, uh, more time is spent on low-gross wholesale customers instead of working with service to make both departments more efficient and profitable. Um, Frank, I think... Um, I, <laughs> I struggle with this a little bit. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with you there. Um, number one, because... Uh, my service department specifically is not my best customer and and not in GP either. Um, and I know that for a lot of service managers, that's something that's kind of hard to comprehend. Um, I'm out here in Wyoming and oil, gas, and coal, uh, those guys, those fleets, those guys are my biggest customers. I mean, they, they completely steamroll my service department. Uh, not to say anything bad about my service department because they do a fantastic job as well. And like I said, you know, I've got a really good relationship there. But, you know, there are, are cases where that statement is true that you made, Frank. Hey, service is your best customer. Um, but there are also a lot of cases where that's not the case. And I think that, that service managers need to be cognizant of that. And parts managers uh, probably need to do a better job of, of making sure that we make service a priority, you know, because from, from Frank's um, comment here, he's saying, hey, service is your best customer. And I, I'm going to tell you that I don't agree with that. I think that um, the customers coming in are our best customers, and they're not just service customers. They're fixed operations customers, right? So... Uh, while I don't agree with that, I do think that there needs to be a very large emphasis on making sure that you're taking care of the things um, internally at a, at a very efficient and, and meticulous uh, rate. Because, you know, look, you don't want to slander your name out there. You know, you want to make sure that you're not only taking care of your wholesale customers, but you're also you've got the best shop in town. You know, and that, that might actually be true. So, um, there, there, again, 
all of these are going to have just a, a great dichotomy, a great conversation to be had. And a lot of these can be fixed by service and parts managers putting their ego aside because that's a lot of what this is driven by, putting their ego aside and uh, coming together once, twice, hell, once a day if you need to. And really executing on a strategy that you build out. You know, what's the goal? Okay, we're going to start working better together so that we can retain more profit. Perfect. Okay, let's start executing. Let's actually make a plan. Um, because the service or, or, or Frank's perspective here, hey, service is your best customer. Stop messing with wholesale customers. Well, that's, that's actually not a good way of going about it. Um, and I think intuitively we all understand that. A better way to go about it is saying, hey, let's not get so upset with each other, but let's actually come up with a plan so that we can start managing this a little better. Because our paychecks rely on it. And paychecks are affected by egos. And that's just the nature of the business. So Paul commented, and he says, why why it is that parts are always discounted first before any labor is when trying to make the total amount of fit. And I think that what, what he's saying is parts managers need to understand why the first reaction that service advisors or service managers have is discounting those parts. And, and I'm going to assume that what he's getting at is that there is a ton of gross profit in those parts. There's a, a matrix. You could be selling it over list. Um, probably something like that. I don't really know. He didn't expand. Um, I guess that's all I've really got to say about that. Uh, Robert says the common issue that happens here is budgets and cost control. Now we're, we're actually getting into something um, that, that makes sense here. Parts managers are under the cost to get the stocking costs down and reduce shelf life. But the main issue is communication. Service managers and parts managers need to talk more. And that's kind of what we've been talking about this whole time on the podcast, especially regarding warranty issues. This information then needs to be relayed to staff and customers involved. As some warranty parts are usually weird and obscure items that aren't usually available at regional distribution and either have to be pulled from the production line or the factory. It's the balance of both departments working together to keep the customer informed whether that be a delay from the factory or a misdelivery. And then he closes his comment with communication is the key. I think that that really sums it up. That, that, that's a great comment. Um, Robert, thank you for that. You know, parts managers are put under a lot of, of uh, I would say a lot of stress to make sure that cost control is, is um, kept under control, quite frankly. Um, you know, especially if you're part of a private group who might have uh, capital uh, restraints, um, that, that can be a, a, a real big issue. So what he's saying here is we need a better line of communication. Um, we need a way of coming together and saying, hey, this is why something got missed. How can we work together to resolve it either going forward or what can we do? Um, to to contact the customer together to make sure that we take care of this. You know, I, I think that's what Robert's getting at. And he says, and he closes, he says, communication is the key. And th that's that sums it up. Communication really is the key. 
Unfortunately, the way that we communicate sometimes, again, is just totally driven by, by ego and by just sheer hatred sometimes, um, which is actually really unfortunate. All right, so moving on, uh, Malcolm says, in other markets, the parts department needs to stop using the service department as a cash cow. When completing analysis, it's not unusual in certain markets to see the parts department selling parts to wholesale um, and independents with far better discount than given to the loyal service customer, which is then costing the business lost sales in the workshop and the body shop, which overall means the business is losing labor hours. And the perception that the business is expensive is actually driven by the parts department. A one business approach is required. Okay, so I don't agree with that. Um, I don't think that the building the perception that the dealer is extremely expensive is not. It, it has to do with parts, but it's it's definitely not totally parts. Um, because I, I'm sure you could go to any, any, literally any independent installer in any market, and you will find that their labor rate is substantially lower than yours is at the dealership. So um, I, I don't agree with that. However, I would say that in general, the dealership um, the dealership is more expensive because of both parts and service. <clears throat> um, and here's the reality of the situation. If you're looking at your, your P&L and you're saying, okay, I've got 15 parts employees, I've got 40 service employees, most of your independent installers don't have an expense like that. In fact, you might, in your market, there may be no independent installers who have to cover the costs of that and then still also show a profit according to their uh, business plan or what their, their GM might expect or the corporate guys. So, you know, I, I think we have to take that into account. Um, I agree that it's probably far too expensive on both ends, especially the way business is going now. Um, people are really looking to save money. And so, Malcolm, I think you do bring up a good point. I don't think you can blame the parts department for that. Um, and I think there would be a lot of people who would agree with me on that. But, you know, back again, we're going to keep circling back to this with almost every co comment. But communication is is absolute key. Um, and tracking lost jobs. You know, we, we talk a lot about tracking lost sales. Well, do you track lost jobs? And if you do, are you coming together with the parts manager to figure out how to capture more of those jobs, to put a package together that says, hey, we're going to try, we're, we notice we're losing a ton of these, these jobs lately and they're going to the independents. Let's put a package together. Okay, let's reduce our rate, focus on volume and see if we can turn a, a real profit that way. You know, but those conversations have to be had. Um, it's you can't just blame one department or the other. So, um, because the reality is that is that your profit percentages are probably not driven by you as far as what the standard is or what the benchmark is, and you're simply just trying to hit a number that was laid out before you. And so, in order to do that, you can't operate like an independent installer. Um, and I know we could go into a bunch of other things, sell the value, the dealer, the warranty, all that good stuff. 
in most cases, some of your, a lot of your customers aren't going to care about that, right? That's why independent installers exist. Um, but again, communication is, is the key here. And a solid strategy is the key here. Are we going for volume um, or, or what does that actually look like? Okay, so moving on to the next comment, Dave, uh, who is a parts manager, says communication and forward planning from both parties. These days, it is not a service versus parts, but now it is an after sales department. Both parties working together to understand the frustrations, shortfalls, and wins of each other's team. Working closely together and knowing each other, each other's expectations, planning, and processes will help the after sales team and the customers, whether external, trade, retail, or internal. Be open and honest is the only way to resolve issues and investigate where did, quote, we go wrong. I really like that comment. Um, and it ties in with what we've been talking about, which is communication planning from both parties. And I like what you said about forward planning. People don't forward plan like they should. They, they wait until December, which, uh, let's see, today is December 12th, 2020. It's a Saturday. And a lot of people haven't probably even made their 2021 strategic business plans yet. So, I mean, this is something that I get a little bit passionate about. But what Dave is saying here is absolutely 100% accurate. He says, communication and forward planning from both parties. Um, You can't skip that step. You can't build your business plan as a parts manager and not include your service manager. Vice versa, you cannot go in as a service manager and go, hey, this is what we're going to do, blah, 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 and not involve your parts team. That doesn't make any sense. You guys rely on each other. Um, So the fact that he says, hey, communication, forward planning from both parties, I think he just absolutely hit the nail on the head. Thanks for the comment, Dave. So Paul... Paul says both managers should appreciate that they work for the same company. Proper planning on both sides to ensure the right parts are available at the right time. And parts managers should see their own workshop as their best, most loyal, closest customer. Both should shoulder the cost of discounting if it secures the job into their own workshop. But both should obviously share the profit as well. In a perfect world, they would be the same department with one team and one manager. Paul, that's a really great comment. Um, I agree with almost everything there. I don't really think that one team, one manager is the solution. I think what we maybe talked about before with a fixed operations director overseeing both uh, managers and those managers heading up their departments, I think that's the the better way to uh, build more of a cohesive team. And the reason why I say that is one manager um, isn't going to be able to manage all of the moving parts um, or the the, the moving pieces of both service and parts. Um, Parts has a ton of nuances on its own, and I know for a fact that service does as well, and I think it would just be far too much uh, for it to just be one department one manager, but I see where you're going with that because you said it would be one team. And I think that the job of the fixed operations director is to, to bring 
the parts and service team together to see themselves as one fixed operations team. I, I completely agree with you there. Um, and honestly, both service and parts managers have to be on board with that. Um, you can't have someone vindictive or just driven by ego. You know, you, you just really, you really can't. You could can be passionate. Um, you can want to protect your department. I think those are all good things. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got to work with the other manager. Um, so, Paul, great, great comment. Thank you for that. Okay, so just a couple more. Uh, Hadrian, I think. Uh, I may have totally botched that, and I'm really sorry if I did. Uh, but he said that it is better to sell the part for a penny profit than to not sell it at all. There is no profit in a part sat on a shelf, only stock charges. The service department is their best customer, but cannot get the same discount as their trade customer to sell the discs and pads for the car sat on the ramp in the workshop too. Um, so what I think he's trying to say is, hey, whatever gets the sale, that's what we should go with. Um, I don't always agree with this. I think in some cases it's true. I think that um, some some cases it's better just to get the sale than to worry about, well, I'm not making my 30% on it or, or whatever. Uh, don't agree with the, the penny profit. Uh, that doesn't cover my expenses. That doesn't cover your expenses. Um, we both intuitively know that. And uh, honestly, that that's just not good business, right? If we can't sell our value, like we're worth more than a penny, okay? Um, so I don't agree with that. I do agree that we should be a lot more flexible in our pricing, especially, you know, we kind of hit on this earlier uh, when we're putting together packages and maybe we're going for volume versus versus margin and we're trying to make it up that way and that's fine. Um, both Both parties need to be involved with that and and in agreement with that but i don't think that we should be um going so slim that we don't cover our expenses on either side i don't think you should be discounting your labor rate to the extent that you're not able to uh, cover your costs of producing the work that's again it's just not good business now we could talk about lean operations and and what that looks like um and how we can drive costs down but uh, at the end of the day, I, I just I just don't agree with that. I don't think that you should want every single job, even if it is worth a penny of profit. So Dayton says, having the needed part on hand and ready to sell saves time for the service department and helps increase part sales. And he's a corporate parts director, and I completely 100% agree with that. And uh, there should be strategies in place for that. And this is a good example of someone driving down initiatives. And this is why I think it's important to have corporate parts personnel um, overseeing fill rates and overseeing stock levels and overseeing um, closing balances for your inventory at the end of the month. It's super important that you have checks and balances in both departments. And when you have a corporate parts director, all of your service departments and your independent installers are going to benefit from that every time, um, as long as they know what they're doing, of course. But Dayton, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think that that takes a lot of planning, a lot of strategy. It's an easy thing to say, and I know that you know that. 
So thank you very much for the comment. Uh, Mohammed says service manager wish wishes that the parts manager always kept this in mind. First supply ratio at range of minimum 95% and death stock ratio 3% and below. Okay, so if you're um, wondering what that means, I think what he's saying is your fill rate, your off-the-shelf fill rate needs to be a minimum of 95% out to your service department. Um, and maybe your obsolescence is death stock. I, I don't think I've heard that term before, uh, but 3% and below, which I think that depending on your inventory size, you could probably go lower than that. But um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think it's, I don't know with the numbers, I'm not sure that that's feasible for everyone in every situation. Probably for the most part, that's pretty reasonable. Um, so yeah, thanks for the comment. Okay, so that was every comment on the service manager um, side of things. I asked the same question, the parts managers. I said, hey, parts managers, what do you wish that service managers could understand? This was only about three days ago, and actually it's still getting a lot of good traction. I really appreciate um, everybody's input on this, um, on both the service and the parts side. I've got some really smart people on my LinkedIn, and that's why I like to post on there so much, um, even if people don't really like what I have to say sometimes. Uh, that's okay, but you know, I think there's just a ton of smart people, and they have a lot of great ideas, and I would never know that unless I kind of just put myself out there. So I encourage you to do the same. Um, but let's go over some of the parts uh, answers. And let's see. So Tony says, having been a part of both departments, the parts department needs to understand the true cost of tech idle time. That's a great point. That's something we didn't actually hear on the service side. Parts managers may think they are making more money by ordering the part for next day rather than paying 10% more to pick up for same day. However, what has been lost in tech idle time? I can always order another part, but lost tech time is gone forever. How many parts managers track same day fill rate along with off the shelf fill rate? And Tony, I think that you make a really, really good point. And I think that's what you get from someone who's been on both ends of the spectrum service and parts um, he says look idle time is dangerous and the more idle time we have the less money both departments are making so on the parts end and everyone on the parts end should understand this um, not just your parts manager I, I think it's a prerequisite for your parts manager to understand this it would be ridiculous for someone not to understand this but your team your back counter team everyone on your team your warehouse they need to understand tech idle time and how that actually is death to everybody uh, when a tech is not turning a wrench. So with that being said, you know, I think he makes a good point by, hey, you know, you could pay an extra 10% and make that repair that day, meaning reducing your tech idle time and also opening up that technician for something else. So I think that's kind of a win-win, especially at a 10% rate. Um, or you could order it for the next day and earn that additional 10%. But what you're not realizing, and I think to Tony's point, is that you've lost that idle time in that technician. And that technician could have been making you money. And that's really important to understand when you're deciding how to order a part. 
And so, Tony, that, that's, a, that's a great insight, um, something that we didn't even see on the service side, but I appreciate your perspective. So Jim says service managers need to know the constraints that parts operates under. They order what you ask for, but can't always return what you didn't need. They stock parts based on demand, not speculation. Service is our best GP customer, but also creates the majority of obsolescence, oftentimes due to the lack of an effective SOP process, which is why PMs become skeptical of ASM's ordering habits. So I think this struck a chord with a lot of people, uh, obviously. And the reason I say that is because it got a ton of likes. Um, and usually Jim's stuff does. He's super insightful and, and uh, I, I'm really happy that he commented on both uh, the service and the parts question. So thank you, Jim. Um, and I think that this kind of goes along with what we've been talking about. Communication on an SOP process. Um, have we had that communication? There, there is kind of a starting point, but he goes on, he says, service is our best GP customer, but also creates the majority of obsolescence. Um, and I think he's, he's, he's spot on with that, you know, and, and uh, I don't necessarily blame service for that. I think that um, parts is our business. And if service isn't going to call, I am because I want that part sold. So, you know, while I can sit around and say, hey, um, well, the reason I have 10% of my inventory is totally obsolete is because service didn't freaking call our customers. Actually, I'm responsible for that. Um, and and service is, is responsible for that as well. But the dealership calling the customer is all the customer cares about. It really doesn't matter who it is. Uh, they don't care what department you work for. So keep that in mind as you build your SOP process, like Jim's saying. Again, thank you, Jim, for for uh, commenting. I always appreciate your insights. Um, but I think that if you don't have a solid special order parts process, when a part comes in, what happens? You know, and I'm not talking about the wholesale and the retail, all your other stuff that you have going on. I'm talking about the parts that should be going out to your shop. Why are they not going out to your shop? Let's start there. Let's have the conversation and build a process around that. Um, and it's actually very simple. But both parties have to agree. Who's responsible for what? And when someone fails to do something, who's being held accountable for that? Who is held accountable to the obsolescence? That is the parts manager. So, you know, if you're a parts manager and you are relying on your service department to follow up and sell those parts for you, then, then uh, I mean, you're always going to have obsolescence in my opinion. Um, and maybe the solution is, hey, I have a really hard time working with my service department. I'm going to take things into my own hands uh, and make sure that these parts get out the door. Or we're going to start focusing a lot more on prepaids. So think about it. Thank you, Jim. Uh, next is from Kim, who says, what a fantastic conversation. By the way, I completely agree with that. Thank you. I don't believe I have any input as I see the struggles between parts managers and service managers are the same throughout no matter what make we're selling 
or a part of the country we're from. I'm old school. Service is our number one customer, but we can't stock everything and we order what you ask for. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, Kim, I, I agree with you there. And I think intuitively we all understand that. Service, parts, sales, anyone. I think everyone understands that we can't, you know, stock all of the parts um, that might come up, right? I mean, we're not we're not the OEM. We're not a PDC. We're we're much smaller than that. And so I, I agree with you. And I think that having that understanding every single week and having a, actually a conversation every single week. Uh, about that really helps, you know, and honestly, a, a solid relationship between service and parts uh, managers, I think would solve a lot of this. And what I mean is actually becoming friends with somebody, you know, and having a great professional relationship with them and not just coming to each other when there's a problem, but actually going to each other and saying, hey, what can I help you with? You know, um, I think that's a good way to start building that relationship and then everything else becomes a lot easier after that. You know, the issues become easier to deal with. Um, explaining why something happened the way that it did becomes much easier and solutions come to you much easier. So thanks, Kim. Appreciate that. Uh, Michael says logistics. Um, I don't know. I, th I think a lot of service managers do understand logistics. Um, I guess I can't speak for everybody, but you know, uh, a lot of people who are who are department heads in this kind of business have been around for a long time. They know how things work, and they might still get frustrated at simple things like, um, you know, back orders or parts that didn't weren't stocked or what whatever it is. Um, but I think for the most part, everyone understands the logistics of the parts department. And there's a lot of logistics that is being managed in the service business as well. It's really a lot of coordination and, and logistical input that goes into running a service department, especially of any, any size. Um, so it was just a one-word comment, uh, but I think intuitively we all pretty much understand that. Uh, Melissa says, service managers need to understand how, why, and when parts are stocked and returned on buybacks. They also need to understand that if a parts person makes a mistake, that it doesn't mean they need to throw the whole department under the bus and just hold parts accountable. There are many reasons a part could be incorrect. They also need to understand VOR freight costs, appreciation and depreciation in parts. I could go on. Yeah, you bring up some really good points. As far as throwing the other department under the bus, I think that's why I ask these questions. You know, because um, I, I, I see that a lot. And I see a lot of animosity um, between the two. And I also think it's really easy for someone who is customer-facing to just put the blame on somebody else. Um, and by the way, as department heads, if you ever need some really good reading to go over together, and I highly recommend this, I would buy the book Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. And that will show you how taking ownership of a problem up front, uh, no matter whose fault it was, 
is the absolute best way to solve the problem. Now, you can go back internally and say, hey, what the hell happened here? I just got my freaking head ripped off by this customer because I took the blame for X, Y, Z. And I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, which is the customer could really care less who dropped the ball. All they see is that your dealership dropped the ball. So, you know, don't try to just save yourself. Um, have some loyalty to the business as a whole and take ownership of it because your customer honestly could care less. Um, all they hear is that you can't fix their car when you said they could. And that's a problem. So take ownership, fix the problem, but internally go back and figure out how we can prevent that from happening in the future. So Melissa, uh, great comment and, and thank you. Uh, Tanner says, not every part for every model ever made can be stocked. <laughs> I, I sense uh, some frustration there, uh, Tanner. And he goes on to say, our entire operation is based off of process flow due to the amount of customer interactions that we have from multiple channels. The cooperation of service with these processes is crucial for a smooth running parts department, which results in a smooth running service department. And Tanner, you're, you're right. Um, when one is running smooth, generally the other is as well. And it just makes everybody more money. It creates more opportunity for everybody as well. Um, and it kind of goes back to, to a comment. I think it was on the, the service question, which was maybe we should have one department, one team, one manager. And like I said, what he was uh, kind of getting at there was just building a kind of a cohesive unit and an understanding that things will go wrong, but we can deal with them as a team. You know, um, having that understanding going in every day, hey, this is why I exist. I solve problems. You know, that's what we do for our customers. So having an expectation that things will go wrong because um, I think it'd be foolish to think that nothing will ever go wrong. Um, but just trying your, your, your damn best to solve problems for your customer. It doesn't matter if you're in parts, service, sales, if you're on the collision side, it really doesn't matter. We're just solving problems for our customer. So, uh, Tanner, thanks for the comment, man. And Joe says, the service manager plays a vital role in ensuring customers are notified and appointments are made, hopefully in advance, on special order parts. They need to understand that even with a P&L ratio of $1, they achieve the same amount of gross profit or more on the sale of the parts. They need to stress this to the ASMs. And I think what Joe's getting at here is don't let customers slip through the cracks. If you order something for a customer, get that customer back in, schedule them up front. And Jim mentioned this, what is our SOP process? And a lot of people are touching on this and it seems like it's kind of a source of frustration for a lot of people, which is we will get a verbal confirmation from a customer and we'll tell them, hey, yeah, we'll call call you when it comes in. We'll get you set up. Uh, it seems like somewhere along the line, that's just not happening for, for some of us here. And, you know, I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is just you have to take ownership of that. If your service department won't do it, if that's true, and, and usually that's not true, right? Everybody's busy. Uh, maybe there's not a process in place. That's both departments' fault. So 
let's assume that you have the worst service department ever and they're just not calling customers back. Well, look, that's your job now. Um, otherwise, that part sits there and your team does not benefit from it. So I think that, um, again, we, we can touch on communication of both department heads in creating these processes that scale the business. And this is not just for SOP parts, but it's actually for everything, everything and anything. You know, these departments are so interconnected. Um, and yeah, parts has, has wholesale and they've got online, they've got retail, they've got all these different things. But most of the time, service and parts um, should be working synergistically because service is, is, a, is a huge customer for the parts department or the biggest, right? Um, as many pointed out before. So it's really on, on both departments to ensure that this does not happen. There needs to be an SOP process that is one of the most critical components of running one of these departments. Thanks for the comment, Joe. And Ryan says, how the parts department works. I, I know you were kind of being a little sarcastic there, but I, th I think you actually touched on something important on both ends. Um, a lot of parts managers don't understand how service works either. And, you know, there's a lot of service managers, obviously, who've never worked in parts. They've just had to deal with them. So... I think shadowing, shadowing your fellow manager is a great idea. Really getting into the details of how something works is only going to make you better in your department. And maybe it, it can make you see how you can change something really easily or really simply that will make a really big impact on both businesses. But you're never going to know if you don't take some initiative and, and learn how that other department works. Um, you may think you know, and I, I think that's uh, I think the ego is is coming in if you think that you know, and you haven't been on that side before. But I mean, seriously, take some initiative and and learn how the other side works. And I'm I'm talking to both service and parts managers. It's extremely important. In fact, it should be a complete prerequisite to running a fixed operations business. You need to know how the other team handles business. Otherwise, you're not going to know how to work with them. So again, I, I know you're trying to be sarcastic, but thanks for the comment. I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's important. Okay, so the last one on the parts question, Anthony says, the value of the service and the part. Uphold the value of our services along with our parts. If the advisor thinks it's too much, that would reflect to the customer. CP is turning into wholesale on the service drive sell security and confidence to our customers. And we kind of mentioned this before when someone brought up, hey, it's better to sell something at a penny profit than not at all. And um, I, I mentioned that I don't agree with that really in any way. But I think what Anthony's saying is um, he feels like we're not selling value first and we're scared to present prices as they are. And I think you have to get to the root of why that is. Um, is, is it that your prices are just way too high? <laughs> I mean, like, are your service advisors scared to present the prices because um, they've been told time and time and time and time again that they're, they're able to 
take their vehicle somewhere else and get that job done for half the price. So, you know, I, I, this is like beating a dead horse here, but going back to communication, how would you know that if you're not having these regular meetings? How would you know that um, a service advisor is having a very specific issue selling these kinds of jobs? Because it could very well be a pricing issue, and it could be it, it could be an inflation on either labor uh, price or parts price. You know, it's it's it, it's both in most cases. So I'm not saying that that's your issue at all, but I am saying that in some cases it is the issue. Um, in some cases, a lot of our service advisors come from like a uh, like a tire shop or an oil chain shop or something like that, and they've got some capability in sales and they know the mechanics and uh, a little bit and things like that. So they're used to selling cheap jobs, cheap labor, cheap parts. So it's a training issue, I think. And it's also, um, it, it should be a kind of a red flag for you to step back and say, Hey, let me make sure, let me just make sure I'm still competitive in the market. I can't be the same price as everybody else because I have more overhead than anybody else, but let me make sure I'm competitive with the value that I'm trying to sell. That's the key. What is the value? Define the value that the customer gets and begin your training process. And if your prices are in line with where you think they should be, then rule that out, build a training program, and take some ownership of how that training program is executed and how the sales process is actually executed on the service drive. So, yeah, I think you're, you're touching on something that a lot of people are, are thinking about, which is it seems like we just keep driving the price down to um, better compete with maybe some independent installers. But the argument you're making is we're far more valuable than an independent installer. Your challenge is going to be making your customer aware of that and showing them how you're more valuable. There are some people who can do it really, really well. I know a lot of them. Um, we have a lot of them in the dealership I am working in now. But we also have a lot of people, like I said, who came from a, a tire shop, and that's not their fault, but they're just used to selling cheap service and cheap parts. So some of that could be a training issue. Some of it could be some price inflation there. Make sure you're competitive. Make sure you outline your value. And I think you can actually solve that problem. Okay, so that is all of the comments. I'm sure some more will trickle in. Um, I just want to say thank you to everyone who commented. Thanks for adding some um, personal experience into it. Um, I think everyone who commented is, is an expert in what they do. You know, and that's why I like LinkedIn. You know, a lot of there's a lot of driven people on here, a lot of people who actually they care about what they're doing and they care about these questions. So I uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you want to talk any more about it, feel free to email me, jscott at partsinnovations.com. Check out the website, partsinnovations.com, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks.